Hey guys, Bridget here. Before we start this week's episode of Proof, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description, and we want to know what you think. It only takes a few minutes, and it really helps us to make the show better. Now, on to Proof. It was 2015. Someone had made a terrible discovery in a disused museum in Bermondsey, an area in southeast London. A local man, one Steve Cornish, went to the museum to investigate. And when I got to the top of the stairs, I looked across and I just couldn't believe what I saw. It was unbelievable. What he saw was so heinous, he was at a loss for words. I was in absolute shock. The graffiti in there was all over the walls. It really was shocking to see the graffiti. A crime had been committed. In its wake, a scene of devastation. They'd opened the case up and literally turned the cake from tier two to the top tier upside down. A replica of Queen Elizabeth's wedding cake was destroyed. And they'd thrown red paint all over it from top to bottom and just let it drip down, causing this uh, unbelievable, horrific effect. And they'd taped a great big A, letter A, over the glass front of the panel, which we now know is, is meaning the word anarchy, A for anarchy. But the story wasn't over. Because over the next couple of years, hundreds of people would come together and spend thousands of hours to recreate this intricately iced replica of Queen Elizabeth's royal wedding cake. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Bridget, and I want to tell you about something I think you're going to love. It's NakedWines.com. They bring delicious, affordable wines straight from independent winemakers directly to your home. Unlike the big wine retailers, NakedWines.com is a customer-funded wine business. With the help of the more than 100,000 member angel community, NakedWines.com supports independent winemakers to make their passion projects. And you can become an angel too with a monthly membership so you can support independent winemakers and get access to delicious exclusive wines in return. Go to NakedWines.com proof for $50 off your first order. The royal cake had been sitting in a disused museum called the Pump House, waiting for it to be rehomed to a new museum. This is Emma Wetherill, an audio producer in Warwick, England. The Pump House had been empty for about four years after its funding had been cut off and squatters had moved in. We were constantly finding out there were break-ins and rumours going around that, that there was damage being caused on the inside of the Pump House. One day in October 2015... Steve Cornish got a call from someone with a tip-off. He told me that there'd been major damage done to the inside of the museum. Steve calls himself a son of Bermondsey. He's one of those guys you get in every neighbourhood. He's involved in the community groups, he knows the history of the area, who lives where and what their business is. 
So when something happens, like the vandalization of the pump house, he's the one who people call. After the vandalism in the pump house, the local Bermondsey council put in security guards to watch over the place. But when Steve got the tip off about the damage, he knew he had to go and check on it himself. But the son of Bermondsey title doesn't give you official access to a sealed area. So Steve walked up to the guard and pretended to be from health and safety. He said, well, show me some ID. I said, I've left it in the car, I'll go back to the car. I got four or five paces away from him. And he said, oh, I don't bother. He said, come back. He said, I'll take you in there. So I had to put the IVs on and the hat. And he showed me into the premises. Before the Pump House Museum had gone to ruin, it used to house artifacts pertaining to the history of the area. Mostly historical items from everyday life. Everything from brooms to washing machines, to jukeboxes, to telephones. But the highlight of the museum was a replica of one of Queen Elizabeth's royal wedding cakes. At her wedding in 1947, the then Princess Elizabeth had 11 cakes. One of them was made by a Bermondsey biscuit factory called Peak Freens. They were so proud of the cake that they immediately made a replica that they could display in the factory for all to see. And there was a lot to be proud of. It was six foot tall with six tiers. This replica didn't have real cake inside. It had been replaced by a dummy, but it had the identical intricate white sugar craft as on the original royal wedding cake. Around the outside of each tier on the cake was unbelievably fantastic artwork, really. When the museum closed in 2011, the council split up all the artefacts and gave them to local schools or care homes. But the cake was very delicate and too difficult to move. So in October 2015, it was still sitting there, waiting to be rehomed. On entering the museum, Steve Cornish headed straight to the mezzanine floor where he knew the cake would be, accompanied by the official security guard. Which is where Steve found the cake, upturned and smashed to pieces by the squatters, dripping in red paint and covered in the anarchy sign. An attack on the Queen and the monarchy. Steve, in his disguise as a health and safety inspector, created a distraction so that he could be alone with the cake. I pointed down to one of the foreman's workers downstairs and said, look, he needs to put an hat on and an eye on. Can you go and have a word of him? As soon as he went, I got my camera phone out and I took the photographs. So I had about 30 seconds. Steve made a quick exit from the pump house and went home to take another look at the photos. If he wasn't born in the area, you didn't know the history of the cake, which we all did. You would have just thought it's a cake. All right, it's a damaged cake. But the history and the workmanship and the time and effort, it was a real sickening thing to see, to be honest. Steve knew he had to do something about this, so he called Gary Magold. I was contacted by a guy who lives in Robert Hive called Steve Cornish. Gary is the keeper of the Biscuit Museum. The Biscuit Museum is small. It's actually on the site of the old Peak Friends factory. That's the biscuit company who made the original royal cake. And it's also where the replica cake was supposed to be rehomed, returning to its place of origin. That was before it was destroyed. And he called me to say, don't know if you know, but squatters have got into the Pump House Museum and have trashed the cake. 
history really matters to Gary. And he really cares about Bermondsey, even though it isn't a particularly fashionable or well-known part of London. It used to be a place of industry, factories, railways, docklands, which also meant it was a big target in World War II and got heavily bombed. Preceded by a shower of flares, German bombers rained fire and high-explosive bombs in their most savage attack on London. Here again is the blood, the sweat and tears that Nazi warfare brings to the men, women and children of city, town and village. I kind of feel that Bermondsey has lost enough. I'm talking about redevelopment of streets, the tearing down of terraced housing, the loss of factories, the loss of jobs, the whole character of it. And I'm loathe to see that disappear even more than it needs to. This part of the city produced food for the whole country and was once known as the Larder of London. You could tell where you were by various smells. Sarsen's vinegar, you could smell that. Down by, there was Courage's, the brewery, down by Tower Bridge, and a little way on from that was butlers, grinders and operators, and they were spice millers, and you could smell that. And, of course, around Peak Fringe, you could smell when biscuits were being baked and you could smell when Christmas puddings were being made. Back in the day, the Peak Freens Biscuit Company was a really big deal. At the turn of the 20th century, they employed 10,000 people, mostly women. And Peak Freens were innovators. They invented the first chocolate-covered biscuit called Chocolate Table. They invented the Bourbon. They invented the Garibaldi, named after the Italian revolutionary. So when Elizabeth II was getting married in 1947... Peak Friends was one of the many companies who applied to bake an official cake for the royal wedding. It's a real honor to make a cake for the future queen, and Peak Friends were one of the few whose bid was accepted. Once the cake was made, they had to transport it the four miles from Bermondsey to Buckingham Palace. And apparently it went on the back of a specially designed vehicle about two miles an hour with liveried people to deliver it off to the palace. But Bermondsey has changed a lot in the last couple of decades. The Docklands began to close in the late 70s, and without them, other local trade also left. So families moved away. And of course, the area went in decline, and Peaks closed in 1989. After the Peak Friends factory closed, the area was pretty forgotten about. But in the last few years, in a story familiar to cities across the world, there's been a lot of gentrification. There is massive regeneration going on. Skyscrapers up to 60 storey have just gone through in the last few months through the planning. So while the fabric of Bermondsey is rapidly changing, it's no surprise that Gary Maygold and Steve Cornish are a bit sentimental about Bermondsey history. When they got the news about the Vandalize cake, they thought, we need to do something about this. Without that initial spark, this doesn't happen. It's just another bad news story. It's very easy to be negative and just moan about what's happened. There's not many people look at it and go, right, we're not having this. We're going to turn it around. Steve and Gary decided to rebuild the royal wedding cake. Let me just try and describe this cake so that you can understand why it was so iconic. So firstly, it's massive, the size of a grown man. It's all covered in perfect white, hard royal icing. The decorations of the tiers are a mix of icing piped straight onto the cake and plaques and figures made separately and then attached to the side. And these plaques represent various bits and pieces within the then Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip's life. 
So one of the tiers depicts Dartmouth College, where Prince Philip did his naval training. Another tier, a torpedo boat that is part of the Sea Rangers, who Elizabeth served with. There's Glam's Castle, the beloved childhood home of Elizabeth. And there's the Windsor coat of arms. It was very personal to them as a couple. Between each of the six tiers are sections covered with handpipe trellis. It looks like the most delicate place. Now, all sugar craft is complex work, but piping trellis is especially difficult. One must have hours, even years of practice, and you need the steadiest of hands and a heap of confidence to pull off the intricacy of trellis. So you can see why the folks at the biscuit factory were so proud of that wedding cake and why they immediately made a copy to preserve the artistry. They turned something that's meant to be temporary, a cake that is eaten, into a permanent work of art. The factory, Peak Freens & Co, was a joining together of three families, all established in food production. There was originally the Peak family, who were tea merchants, and the Freens, who made ship's biscuits for long sea voyages. And they brought in a third player, a biscuit maker called Carr. Well, my name's Chris Carr. I, I'm the great-great-grandson of the founder. And to Chris, family meant biscuits. The cake used to be in the main reception when you came in. And I used to, I suppose, I suppose I was probably about seven or eight when I first started going around the factory. And I remember being put in a, a sort of the smallest white coat that they had. <laughs> and the cake was huge, huge. You know, it was, I sort of looked up, it was probably about six, seven foot tall. And I was, what, four foot or something. And it was absolutely amazing. Talking to people, I get this sense that working at the Peak Freens factory was more than just a job. They were happy and proud to work there. And unusually for the times, the owners really looked after the workers. There was a company doctor, a dentist. They put on day trips to the coast. They had gardening clubs, amateur dramatics clubs. Being a Peak Freens employee was a way of life. And I think that kind of comes through because when you speak to former employees, they do tend to have sort of the rose-tinted look back at it. The royal wedding cake was something that this community was incredibly proud of. So you can appreciate why Gary and Steve wanted to save it. But how do you go about fixing up an ornate six-foot, six-tier, 70-year-old wedding cake? Somebody said to me about the, um, the Gilded Sugar Craft, and so I phoned up. I looked up. Gary's talking about the British Sugar Craft Guild, a group of the best and most experienced sugar craft workers in the country. And of course, everybody has this line, don't they? I've got the Queen's wedding cake from 1947. It's been destroyed. Is there any chance you come down and try and save it, restore it? What an opening line! Yes, they sent pictures through. I mean, it was just scandalous what had happened to it. Um, they'd actually dissembled the whole cake, reassembled it upside down and thrown red paint all over it. Why anyone would do that, I have no idea. As national chair of the British Sugarcraft Guild, Judy Banks took the smashing of the royal cake as a personal attack. Sacrilege. <laughs> Sacrilege, you know, we're all very proud of our skills and to see all that work just destroyed in that way was just awful. Judy got into Sugarcraft when her children, who are now in their 30s, were young and should make their birthday cakes, each year getting more and more elaborate. 
So when she saw the photos of the smashed up cake, she was affected enough to come to London with a couple of her colleagues to inspect the cake. And they were all kind of pouring over this remnants of this cake, like a detective's pour over a dead body, I imagine, because they were, I mean, they had the glasses perched on the end of their nose and they were kind of measuring and photographing and looking and writing stuff down and that. And there's one of the ladies actually trying it to see what the sugar paste tasted like. And she just said, oh, it's very powdery. So um, the conclusion was, after many hours, that, um, no, it was too far gone and it couldn't be restored. But we could have a go at making a new one. Yet it's not quite that straightforward. You see, the British Sugarcraft Guild has 3,500 members and branches all across the UK. It was established almost 40 years ago to share sugarcraft skills, and its members range from those who make cakes as a hobby to top-class professionals. So Judy couldn't make the decision to rebuild the cake all by herself. She had to get the governing committee on board. And some of the committee agreed, some didn't. Maybe it was too big. You know, it was just such a big thing. Judith Lynn was vice chair of the Sugarcraft Guild, second in command to Judy. And yes, their names are in fact Judith and Judy. The committee took the decision to a vote. They'd need the majority to agree to rebuild the cake. But overwhelmingly, we got the vote to go ahead. They said, well, if you're happy to lead the project, then yes, let's do it. But the most important thing was we're an organisation of volunteers. And as people said, you know, how much money have you got for this project? And we said, we haven't got any, you know. Which is a bit of a problem because rebuilding the cake would take a lot of work and expense. There's the cost of the ingredients, including lots of icing sugar. There's the cost of transporting the cake, the logistics, the overheads. They wouldn't be able to do it all by themselves. So Judith and Judy started contacting all the sugarcraft businesses they knew to see if they could get any sponsorship. Before we go on, let's delve into the history of sugarcraft. You see, cakes and weddings have been, pardon the pun, married for millennia. The cake and wedding connection goes back to Roman times, but there were very plain bits of cake then. They used to break cake over the bride and groom's head, symbol of fertility, I assume, or something like that. Sugarcraft started more recently. The first sort of printed recipe for what would become to be called royal icing, because it was called bride cake icing, was in 1669. This icing used the same ingredients as today, egg white and sugar, which dry into a hard material. Bakers today put this on when the cake is cold, but back in the 17th century, it spread on while the cake was still hot from the oven. So wonder they had any teeth left. It must have been rock solid, you know. <laughs> like many things in British culture, it was Queen Victoria in the mid-19th century who popularised wedding cakes covered in white icing. And from then on, it was always known as royal icing, and it filtered down society until everyone wanted their wedding cake covered in beautiful white sugar decorations. And what do you like about it? Oh, the precision, I think, and the skill, and the fact that it's one of those hobbies that totally absorb you. So, you know, and with all this stress going on at the minute, you know, just doing a bit of sugar work just takes your mind off all the news and everything, you know. I mean, it's art, really, but in, in an edible medium. And others recognised the importance of preserving the artistry of the 1947 royal wedding cake because 
Judith and Judy were soon inundated with offers to help rebuild it. Companies offered polystyrene dummies to form the base of the cakes, boards to place the cakes on, icing sugar, crates, flowers, paste, domes, and sponsorship money. So they had the resources. Now they needed the people power. When I I was asked to lead the project, my initial reaction was, I want this to be inclusive, not exclusive. I didn't want to just go around and pick all the people that I knew were good at royal icing. And I just wanted anyone in the British Sugar Craft Guild who wanted to do something to actually take part. The British Sugar Craft Guild is split into different regions which don't have that much to do with each other. But this was such a huge project that for the first time, they needed the whole of the country's Sugar Craft Guild to work together. It was something entirely new for us. Over 350 people volunteered to take part. And I'd just like to remind you that this is the third time that this incredibly complicated cake has been built. Once in 1947 for the Queen, then the original replica made for the factory, and now a replacement of the replica is being rebuilt. Judy measured up the cake and sent out detailed instructions to the regions. Because everything had to be the same colour, the same recipe. Whoever was doing it had to use the same. But there was a problem. The plaques and models on the side of the cake would have originally been made by pressing sugar paste into moulds, much like a kid making Play-Doh shapes. The original moulds no longer existed. They were lost over the decades. Now, these kinds of decorations couldn't be made by piping the icing on by hand, so new moulds needed to be made. You could make new ones by pressing silicon putty against the decoration you wanted to copy, but the damaged replica cake was too delicate to do this. All of a sudden, it seemed like the entire effort was at a standstill. Stay tuned after the break. If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello. Hey, Caroline, it's Bridget. I need you to finish the sentence for me. Okay. Everything but the... Everything but the... Hmm. Um, Cat drag dude. Old fish in the freezer. The peanut butter. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything, including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Take, for example, Kohler's Whitehaven apron front sink. It's a farmhouse-style sink made from enameled cast iron, which means it's stain-resistant. Plus, it resists chipping, cracking, and burning. So your sink will look beautiful and will perform beautifully for years. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hey, Proof listeners. This is Jack Bishop, and I'm here to talk to you about Miyoko's Creamery and their new vegan cheddar cheese. I recently had the opportunity to taste the cheese with the America's Test Kitchen cookbook team. So we're just tasting these and talking about them and seeing what we think about flavor, texture. We evaluated the cheese on flavor and texture. We were really impressed. We felt like they had a little pull to them when they were melted. The cheddar, I think, is like... cheddar actually tastes tastes like cheddar. Yeah. Tastes like cheddar. Do you like it? Yeah, I actually do. Most vegan cheeses on the market are waxy in texture. They have these off flavors. Miyoko's cheddar tastes like dairy cheddar, and it melts like dairy cheddar. If you enjoy eating plant-based dishes like I do, this cheese is a reason to celebrate. It's made from natural ingredients, so it's good for the planet and good for you. Learn more at Miyoko's.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S dot com. 
For 30 years, OXO has been solving kitchen problems. For senior product engineer Mac Moore, that means tackling the most dangerous beast in the kitchen. Cutting an avocado in a traditional way is a really dangerous task in the kitchen. And uh, according to a calculation by the CPSC, there are just under 9,000 avocado-related visits to the emergency room every year. OXO Good Grip's 3-in-1 avocado slicer has a plastic blade that's plenty sharp to cut into an avocado, but not sharp enough to cut your hand. It splits, pits, and slices with ease. So no more unwanted trips to the emergency room. Learn more at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. Maybe the tool isn't the hero we wanted, it's the hero we need. (laughs) Before the break, the British Sugarcraft Guild got all the resources they'd need to rebuild the Queen's 1947 replica wedding cake. Then they hit a wall. Right, so in order to build the new replica, they needed to take moulds of the intricate decorations on the old replica, but it was far too fragile. So Judith and Judy had to come up with another solution. My name is Mike Donnelly. I'm a research engineer at the University of Warwick. I work within a team of engineers who specialise in the use of 3D scanning technologies for research and commercial projects. To rebuild the 70-year-old cake... Judith and Judy wanted to see if they could use the 21st century technology of 3D scanning. So they got in contact with Mike's team. It was something that we couldn't really turn down. We were very pleased to support. It was um, split up into its six tiers, driven down to us, and we were able to look at it in person. As I mentioned, the cake has these intricate plaques detailing events from Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip's life. A lot of these had cracks or pieces missing, so they couldn't just do a straight scan of them. But there was a way around this. On each tier, there were four identical copies of the panel. Our tactic was to scan all four panels, bring them all together, and essentially digitally repair the panel and piece together the missing pieces. It was essentially just like doing a 3D jigsaw puzzle. The scanner is about six and a half feet tall and basically looks like a lightsaber. The scanner emits a laser stripe, which is reflected back from the surface towards the scanner. And what it's doing is it's collecting thousands of points a second and creating a 3D structure of the part that you're scanning. Mike used the info from those scans to create a digital model of the cake without any cracks or missing pieces, which could then be used to print 3D models. So the, the printing process is, instead of using ink, on paper, you're, you're putting down layers of plastic and you're building up the, the 3D form of the part layer by layer. Whilst they were working on the prints and getting those to our mould manufacturer, we had regional workshops all over the country from Ashford in Kent to Aberdeen to Plymouth. The next challenge was how to divide up the work across the UK to the different sugarcraft branches. Judy and Judith decided the easiest way was tier by tier. A tiered cake, the bottom was very, very big. The bottom stayed in London, so the southeast did it. It wasn't being moved. The smallest one, tier six, went up to Scotland because it was the easiest to move. And we came down the country like that. Which involved a scene that's more usually associated with crime movies. We had a hilarious moment on a car park somewhere in the Midlands where they were all then moved out of my boot into other people's cars and (laughs) 
to be transported to Scotland, Cornwall, Kent, wherever. So each region now has their cake tier. The next challenge is that the Guild has to put on workshops. They needed to teach the members how to produce the decorations in exactly the same way so that there would be consistency from top to bottom of the cake. The style was so different in the 1940s to the style we do now. And we kept having to remind everybody, you've got to do this in the 1940s style. So not the super fine tubes we use use now. This was commercial. This was heavy tubes, you know, and getting people to work with in a way that they weren't familiar with, really. When you're producing a purely decorative cake, you use polystyrene dummies instead of cake layers. Then you decorate it by first covering those dummies with a uniform layer of icing or fondant. You then decorate it by either piping straight onto the cake, or you create separate off-pieces by piping onto acetate paper and then attaching those to the cake once they've dried. It's very delicate and intricate work. Some pieces can take 45 minutes or more to pipe, and there can be many casualties along the way. It's very open work. It's very easy to break. And yeah, so it can be quite frustrating. I've seen photos of these workshops, long trestle tables with women sitting down the sides, holding piping bags, concentrating hard as they create art out of sugar. But Judy kept her resolve of being inclusive. And even Gary Maygold, the keeper of the Biscuit Museum, got involved in making the decorations. One Saturday, I went down to one of their classes and was trying, you know, speaking to everybody and then had to go up making a little flower that goes on there, which actually looks more like a jelly mould than a flower, to be honest with you. (laughs) Across the country, the decorated tiers of the cake were coming together, but there was still one final challenge. The royal wedding cake had a topper made out of sugar. It's a dramatic scene of St George, the patron saint of England, astride his horse, which is rearing up as George jabs his sword into the dragon. It's an iconic scene of English legend. But the topper was missing. The vandals had taken it. But there was another copy of it, one made out of silver. The topper that was on the original wedding cake given to Queen Elizabeth II. Gary thought it was a long shot, but it's just possible that Buckingham Palace might have kept it, though they hadn't lost it over the decades. Sent my letter by recorded mail. I knew it got there, but no, I never received a reply at all. Yet another obstacle. But Gary isn't a man to give up easily. So one day he was talking to someone about it. And so she knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody who worked at the Royal Collection. And so I got an email from this lady one day just sort of saying, you know, like, I work at the Royal Collection, I understand you on that. I can look to see whether we've still got the item in our collection. If we have, I need to get permission. And thankfully they did, and she did. Buckingham Palace still had the topper, the final piece that was needed to complete the replica of the replica of Queen Elizabeth's wedding cake. And they gave permission for the team to come to the palace to scan it. Mike got the call that he and his scanner would be going to Buckingham Palace. I travelled down from Coventry to London and I've been to Buckingham Palace before as a tourist and you're you're standing by the big gates and you're you're taking pictures and you're thinking, wow, this place is full of so much history. Yeah, tell me a bit more about that. I mean, did you dress up? I absolutely dressed up and um, I went for the traditional suit trousers and the tie. It was very surreal, to be honest. It was very surreal. So we were taken through this foyer 
and you've got portraits on the walls and you've got statues either side. And you, you just thinking back through the moments in history that have taken place in that room and you've got world leaders and presidents and prime ministers meeting the Queen and going for tours. And here I am with my scanner in my box to do some laser scanning in a room next door. They made it. They got into Buckingham Palace. The silver topper of St. George's stride his horse was in front of them. And as Mike looked at it, he immediately got nervous. The topper was solid silver, which is very shiny. And 3D scanners really struggle with reflective surfaces. So the first part of the scanning process was a good 10 minutes of setting up the scanner and changing the settings and parameters to to see if it would actually be possible to scan. There was a worry that we would get there and all of this effort in the project and transport and getting access to the palace would be wasted because our equipment couldn't capture the data we needed to. They'd come this far, the hours of labour by the Sugarcroft Guild, the donations from across the country, and yet it might all fall down because the topper was too shiny. Mike spent a good couple of hours methodically scanning the statue and capturing all the angles. I didn't want to miss any data from these scans because, you know, getting access to the palace isn't a simple process. So I wanted to make sure I had more than enough information before we left the building. He took five individual scans and it wouldn't be possible to know if he'd got everything until he pieced them together on his computer back at the university. And it was quite a nerve-wracking time opening the laptop and going through the data to make sure that there were no missing pieces. But fortunately, it was all there. They got it. The final piece of the cake. All Mike had to do was use his 3D printer to produce a plastic version of the replica statue in white. And it would be ready to put on top of the cake. In November 2017, two years after Steve Cornish had first discovered the vandalized cake, the British Sugarcraft Guild and the University of Warwick had finally recreated all the pieces— Each tier of the cake was carefully crated, with lots of padding, and sent back from the regions to the Biscuit Museum in London Um, in very sturdy boxes. I mean, it was amazing when it all started coming together, and I've seen photographs where there was a a kind of spot where they all met and exchanged like these um, crated boxes with all the various tiers in them. Judy and Judith took the crates to Gary Maygold's museum on the site of the old Peak Freens factory. So we were on ladders in the museum, putting the outer trellis on the upper tiers, because this thing is six foot tall. And teetering on ladders, you know, I've got no head for heights, but (laughs) teetering on with this delicate trellis and somebody passing a piece up to you and, you know, and yeah, it was, mm, uh, it was different. (laughs) Uh, You may not want to use this, but I will say there were a lot of clenched buttocks. (laughs) going on and a lot of holding of breath. (laughs) Yes, but uh, yeah, it it was quite a tense day. We couldn't believe it when we'd finished that we hadn't broken any. When you see it put together and you see the work that's gone into it, I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Just the scale of the cake. I'd seen it in small pieces and you have an idea of how big it's going to be, but seeing it all fully assembled and seeing the amount of detail within each tier... It was incredible. These people within the Sugarcraft Guild are really, really talented, and it definitely showed. And remember that Sugarcraft flower that Gary made at a workshop? I can claim one fact, and that was that the very last item to be added on before the actual glass case went round it 
was my flower. That was the very last bit that went on. There would be an unveiling ceremony at the museum for all to come and see the completed cake. The night before, Gary invited Steve to come down and take a look. It was a choker. It really was a choker. He took me into the museum. He had the lights off. He got us into the room, unbolted all the doors, and then switched the light on. It was, it was absolutely a choker. To see, choked up to see all the work that had gone into it and to turn that bad news story into a, a fantastic news story was something to behold, honestly. The next day, people started assembling in the Biscuit Museum for the unveiling of the cake. So Chris Carr, he came down with his family. We invited people from the Guild. In fact, we had a guy ring us whose dad worked at Peak Freens in the 20s and 30s, worked in their development department. And um, he came down with his dad. Everyone, Judith, Judy, other Guild members, Steve, Gary, Chris Carr, all crowded into the small museum, which was now dominated by a seven-foot cabinet hidden under Union Jack flags. A local dignitary came to perform the ceremony. And then Jenny Bianco, the uh, former Deputy Lord Lieutenant, said a few words, and um, she pulled the Union Jacks off, and it was the first time anybody had seen it. I was literally, I was reduced to tears when I saw it. It was just beautiful. As soon as it was unveiled, Chris Carr sort of burst into tears because, as he said, as a boy, he used to run into the factory, into reception there, and run straight up to it and look up at it. And he went, it just reminded him of that when he saw it all back together again, which was really, I thought it was really sweet, actually. When people work together as a community to do something really special, for absolutely no financial gain. It was just done for the sheer love of it. And I think also it connected it back to those time when I was a little boy going in and seeing the original one. <laughs> really quite moved <laughs> Anarchists had tried to destroy it, but now, 70 years after the Queen had got married, a copy of her cake was on display again. Not everyone who worked on this cake would have been a royalist, but even if you're against the monarchy in general, the Queen holds a special place in the British psyche. And rebuilding the cake isn't really about politics or belief systems. Each person found a reason to pitch in, honouring a place, a craft, tradition. That The opportunity to then bring the whole sugar gill together, but then to reproduce it, for me, was fantastically special. So that wouldn't have happened if the cake hadn't been destroyed. I think the most rewarding part of it, the fact that people right across the country came together to work on something, and they are all incredibly proud of it. It was such a, a lovely experience that I know that since this has happened, that the Guild now do tend to work more together. And Gary had a message for the anarchists that started all this. Whoever did this, you thought you might have won, but you didn't. You really didn't, because out of it, created friendships. And that, I think that's like quite a powerful aspect of it, is it actually did create friendships. Bermondsey is rapidly changing. In just the last couple of months, a half a billion pound redevelopment scheme has gone through to build 1,500 homes on the site of the old Peak Freens factory. But through this cake, the history of the area lives on. People say, oh, we should never look back. Well, without looking back, I'm not sure how you can move forward, because if you don't look back and find the mistakes of what happened in the past, they're easily replicated in the future. 
And to have that piece of missing Bermondsey history back again, we can't ask for more. Thanks to Emma Weatherall for producing the story. This story was originally reported by Catherine Waters for Gastro Obscura. Thanks, Catherine. Now, if you like proof, you'll love the stories on Gastro Obscura. Go to atlasobscura.com gastro for more. If you want more information about this story, well, we've put all of that up on our website for you. That's www.americastestkitchen.com proof. Go check it out. And if you like proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer, associate producer Caroline Rickard. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is the Earl of Biscuits and Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Miyoko's Creamery, and NakedWines.com. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Hey there. If you're listening to Proof, there's a pretty good chance that you may have a bit of a geeky streak in you. So we've got another nerdy show to recommend. Science Diction is a new podcast from Science Friday and WNYC Studios. In each short episode of Science Diction, host Joanna Mayer digs into the origin of a single word or phrase, and she shows just how much science is baked into our everyday speech and conversation. Did you know that the word meme has more to do with evolutionary biology than the internet? Or that the word cobalt has mischief baked into its name? Hmm. You can find Science Diction on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 